How y'all doing? Were y'all here for the last uh, book talk I was at? Anybody? Uh, I think you were here, weren't you? Yeah, so you were here. Yeah. So the, the idea is that I, uh, my general theme of these books, even though one is fiction and one is nonfiction, is it's still what I'm trying to do is write books that are Valentine's to Kentucky, basically uh, my love letter to the state I'm from. And uh, one was about barn dances and jamborees and country music and the history of it all. And uh, so that's like a travel log. I got it for sale over here. You can leaf through it. And it's very different in a, in, in, because it's a travel guide, you know. So, but this new book is my first novel. But really what it is is sort of an anthology of folk tales that you might, have, you might even recognize some of them in the book that you might, your grandma might have told you about. You know, uh, superstitions, ghost stories folk tales and things that are uniquely Kentucky, uniquely Southern. In a sense, both books are about culture, but they're just uh, presented differently. Um, later on, when we do like a Q&A, I'd be thinking about this, um, be thinking about like maybe a ghost story you heard from your grandma or grandpa or your parents or something. And I'd love, I'd love to like hear like some of your local legends from this area and... Uh, and maybe be thinking about something like that to t talk about later. And any questions, I'll be happy to answer. But let me get my remote control. I forgot. Hold on. It was going to be a graphic novel because I couldn't get anybody to publish this thing because it's not a lot of people. I mean, if you're outside of Kentucky, you know, people think, who cares, you know. Um, but so I was like having a real hard time finding anybody to put this out. And I didn't want to self-publish because I didn't want to have to just go to Kinko's and make my books, you know. So I was like... You know, I kept trying, kept trying, rejection after rejection after rejection. And then, uh, so I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to turn it into a graphic novel and, and draw it out. And I might be 80 years old by the time I'm done because it's so much content. And, um, but right at the last minute, publisher, a publisher, a really great one, $2 radio out of Columbus, um, hey, he got a hold of me on email, on the email, and he said, um, "Hey, I love this book. I mean, it's really cool, you know." I was like, "Well, thank you very much." And uh, so we started talking about putting it out, and um, and we got far along with the in the process, about halfway through, and I, and then we were just joking. And I said, yeah, I almost gave up on the whole thing, just like turned into a comic book, and was just going to go to Kinko's and print it out. And uh, he goes. Really? So you, you did some drawings. He didn't even know that I did art. I was like, yeah, I'll send you some of the pictures. And once he saw them, he's like, well, we have to put the pictures in there. And so it's an illustrated novel. So it's almost like a children's book for, for grown-ups. It's not for kids, I'll tell you that. There's the cover. And um, the cover is, a, is an old uh, etching that I recreated in my own style of um, some screaming panther uh, but panther tales are uh, common to kentucky and one of the uh one of the panthers or they the hillbillies call them painters it's a hillbilly malaprop um but the white thing is common to a lot of uh, appalachia and and even deep south panther tales how many here has seen a big cat you see yeah so you know it's true. Hey, Sean, how you doing, man? Yeah. Um, I saw one. I, I heard one in the middle of the night. I live over in Paducah. And I, you know, I heard that they, they were a folk tale. I didn't know if they were real or not. But uh, in the middle of like four in the morning, it was like, it was having like a banshee mixed with a cat in heat or a leopard or something. It was like so loud. There's so much echo on it. That had to be a huge cat. And every dog in like a half mile radius just started barking. This thing just sent chills up my spine. And then later I actually got to see one run across the road. In fact, I was going to a jamboree out in the middle of the country. And I saw this like a cougar, it was one of the yellow ones, it wasn't a black one, run across the road and time just, I mean, I couldn't believe my eyes what I was seeing. That's not a golden retriever. That's not a dog. It was had this sinewy kind of way he ran and this long tail. I was like, I just saw my first wampus cat. Yeah, so that's, that's the white thing, and he factors in as a, as a character. And I say the white thing is imbued with some 
magical qualities. Um, and everybody has a different kind of version of the white thing. It sings. It sings in a high womanly voice, even though it's a male cat. It, um, I had a guy tell me, there was this old timer lived in Callaway County. He said, yeah, the white thing, you know what? He, he, um, you come out to my house, I'll introduce you to him. I was like, well, wow. Yeah, he comes in and sings to us sometimes. I was like, wow. Just stories like that just blow my mind. And, so, and, the, one, and the Appalachian white thing is always 50 feet ahead of you. And, it, and it's a harbinger of doom. So if you see the white thing 50 feet ahead of you, you can never catch up to it. You're getting close, it'll appear 50 feet ahead of you again. And then it just disappears. And then there will be a death in the family. So in, in a, I get the sense that it might be a hillbilly banshee in cat form. So that's the cover. And uh, you'll get to read about it if you buy the book. It factors into the, the ending. This is the, uh, the graphic novel that I was attempting. And you can see just handwriting everything that I wrote in there. It was just going to be a huge pain in the butt. So, and then drawing it all out. Um, the story is essentially about um, this elderly couple that died in, in their bed in the woods, in their home in the woods. And the vine that ate the south is, you know, kudzu, takes over the house and eventually grows into their bedroom and takes over the entire house, comes up out of the toilet and it comes through the cracks in the walls. You know how it is, it just takes over. They say the best way to plant kudzu is hold it out, drop it and run. So uh, that's the way it is as if you've seen it. And uh, it takes over the house and basically transports the bodies, grows up, them up into the trees where they're dangling there like skeletons, like, like uh, wind chimes almost, made of bone. And um, so this becomes this local legend this guy finds out about and he decides he wants to go find it because he's like me, he's curious, just wants to see it. And uh, so what, basically what happens is he, he enlists a buddy and they go packing off in, down the woods into this uh, forest called the Deadening, which is a real place in western Kentucky actually. And the legend about the Deadening, Burkholder's Deadening, and you, you can actually go there. And I've never gone inside because the legend is once you go inside the deadening, this forest, you will most assuredly lose your way and get lost and have to, have to spend the night. But upon the, the morning, you eventually find your way out. But when you get out of the woods, you find that not just a day has passed, but an entire year. So you've lost a year out of your life. If you're not right with God, that is. So... Uh, um, so basically this guy decides to go in there and like Frodo and Sam in uh, the Lord of the Rings they go trekking into the deadening to find this dark prize and, and uh, Tolkien was a big inspiration I re grew up reading him and I love the movies and the books and all that The Hobbit and all that so, but I was thinking I actually started writing this book when I was in Norway, so I was kind of in a Tolkien-esque kind of landscape on tour with my band. And, uh, but I was homesick for Kentucky, but I was in a sort of Middle Earth surroundings and uh, basically up in the fjords of Norway, going through these caves and tunnels down this long highway. And when you go into these caves, these tunnels and these mountains, you're... Uh, thrown into darkness and here I am in the van for 30 minutes of darkness every time you go into one of these tunnels because it goes on and on and on then you come into the light and the snow and it's beautiful then back into the darkness I'm like kind of getting sick from the drive and it's like disorienting so I open up my laptop just for a light source at first and I just start waxing poetic about Kentucky because I want to go home I want to go home but here I am in Middle Earth it's like Ah, some cool stuff. I started putting it all together. I love Tolkien. I love Kentucky. We've got our own folk tales too. We've got our own monsters, our own just everything Tolkien wrote about was the Anglo-Saxon version of the hillbilly stuff I'm writing about here. Our culture, you know. I say hillbilly in a nice way, though. You know, I hope you don't take offense. But uh, that's this is the comic book. These are the illustrations that ended up getting put in there. I took the text out, but you'll see the these are all drawn uh, with Prismacolor and uh, pen and ink. So basically I draw it out in pencil, 
ink it in, just the line work in, and then color it with a black Prismacolor, which is basically a crayon, black crayon in a pencil form. So I'd get that shading. And uh, so that's the illustrations that are throughout the book that the publisher wanted me to keep in there. And here's another one. It's kind of tiny. But so you can see I'm still trying to turn it into a comic book somehow, like a uh, graphic novel. And there we are. Well, I say we because the main character is kind of me, but it is and isn't. He's unnamed, actually. And there's his buddy who's his guide and his Native American guide who knows the woods like the back of his hand. And he's been there. And he's seen the bones, and he knows how to get there. So he's basically kind of like the golem in a way. But, uh, but he's, he's a dangerous kind of, you don't know if he's good or bad, just like golem in a way. Um, but he, he knows the way. And there they are plunging into the deadening. And that, draw, that drawing there is basically uh, the entrance to the actual deadening in Marshall County in the Millican Swamp of lowlands. Um, the madstone up in the corner is correlative to the ring in Lord of the Rings. That is a, a Cherokee amulet. That's an actual thing of a blanched deer cud, basically regurgitated cud that has uh, petrified into a stone. So there, these were things uh, that the uh, Thunderbolt Cherokee tribe would use to expel the poison out of animal bites. So if you got bit by a snake or a dog, you would apply the madstone to the wound and draw out the poison uh, and say it was basically like herbal remedy. And, uh, but these were actually exist. And in my story, there's only five of them known to exist. And... Um, You'll have to read the book. I don't want to give any spoilers away, but uh, Carver, the, the Indian guide, he carries one around his neck. And uh, it ends up being uh, factoring in pretty heavily into the, the twist at the end. I'm from Paducah, Kentucky, named after Chief Paduk, who may or may not have existed. I like to think that he did. Or maybe I like to think that he didn't, and I can therefore make up who he was. So a lot of this, story, this book is actual folklore and actual bullshit. So <laughs> I like to... What, uh, here, I'll just, I'll just say this. There are two things, I think, that destroyed this oral tradition that now it's fa fascinating that we come to libraries to learn about it. It's like, well, this didn't used to be academic. This used to be what you grew up with. What put an end to that? was uh, industrialism and the, you know, the uh, phenomena that come with it over time as things get more and more technologically sophisticated and our, our stories come from different places other than our grandparents, other than our parents, and the oral tradition started with publishing probably originally with books and you could be distracted by other people's stories from other lands then radio came about, and teleplays, and then television, and the movie, well, the movies, and then television, and then now we have Netflix, and we have iPhones, and all of these things further and further and further take us away from an organic oral tradition. That's obvious. It's just where we're at, and now we study it academically, because it's a curiosity, but it shouldn't be, I don't think. Now, one of the reasons why it's a curiosity is, is because it's been made such by academics. And this is the second thing I think has killed it, killed the oral tradition, which should be kind of a fun thing, a natural thing, a family thing, just like studying your genealogy and being proud of who you are. You should be proud of your stories. But what happened was academia set about to sort of catalog them to death and, and turn it into a science that excludes the common people like us from talking about it because then there's all this discussion about it, whether or not it's accurate or not. So you get this sort of a bean counter, stitch counter, tit for tat kind of, uh, you know, overly intellectual uh, treatment of something that should be fun. The same thing happened with barn dances and country music. It became sort of this thing that became correct or incorrect instead of being fun. So what I'm trying to do with this book and what I'm trying to do with Chief Paduk and the stories is interpret them however I will. 
make them fun again because there was never a pure version of any of it to begin with. And if we can go back and embrace parts of our culture and um, our region, and instead of seeing it as like hokey or old timey, uh, see it as kind of cool and you know, you can mess with it a little bit. You should be able to, it should be a kind of a living, breathing thing. That's what the oral tradition is. That's why the stories change over the years and they, um, they all have different endings, you know, like the old English Jack tales, you know. There was all kinds of different versions of them and you'd see elements of this story and this other story, just like you see in old time music, lyrics from this song. They, what are they doing over here in this song? It's because back in the day, no one really cared about it in this academic way. It was just what you did. There was no such thing as old time music. It was just called music. And it's just what you did to pass time because life sucked. And, uh, but, you know, life still sucks. And you, and you can, uh, we can have fun with it. You know, there, I don't like to get my, uh, I mean, I like watching Netflix and TV shows and comic books and stuff like that. But you got to remember, it's kind of manufactured by Hollywood. And uh, we have kind of like more of an organic connection. Kentucky especially, y'all. You got so much variety with the mountains and the, then you got the Mississippi Delta, the Jackson Purchase, and you got all this variety of hollers and rivers and cultures, Germans and Irish and black folks and Indians. I mean, everybody's got, and it's all mixing together in a great way. I mean, I think that's worth more putting a frame around that and treasuring that and enjoying it than binge watching something you know, manufactured. I don't know. There's room for both. I just say we should get back to making it fun. Again, you, you probably recognize this as a Tolkien-style map. Well, I, I know that's, how, that's I did, drew that on purpose to, to evoke J.R.R. Tolkien. And um, I can kind of bring my mic over here. I hope I don't feed back. But I can kind of step you through the story as we go along. Up here is Paducah, as you can see. And that's the entrance of the trailhead going into the deadening here. And along the way, they pass by... Um, this church is an actual church in um, Graves County and an actual ghost town that uh, called Carter's Mill. It's a real place. So the deadening is a real place. A lot of these places are real, but this is not how it is actually on the map. This is like Middle Earth version of Western Kentucky. I mashed it up and made it my own, and I made things cohabitate in areas that they don't. So I give myself permission to make it fun. Whereas the academic folklorist might go, well, that is not how, that's not how it's laid out. It's like, screw you. I don't care. I like this. And can I just do what I want to do? Because we're writing stories here. You'd be surprised how anal some people are about this stuff. But Carter Mill is a real place. Um, I've taken pictures of it. I, if you're on Instagram and you follow me, you can see uh, photos of this ghost town, a real actual 1800s ghost town in the woods, grown over by a kudzu. And there's a hotel and there's a blacksmith forge and, and it's just right there. And I, I, we always drove by it. My dad's like, I was like, are those, is there buildings out in the woods there? He's like, yeah, it's Carter Mill. It's been like that for years and years. I'm like, I always drove by it as a kid, just like looking. I was like, wow, it's weird. And I finally like trespassed in there. I could have got shot, but um, uh, took some great pictures and it really inspired a cool chapter about, um, about that ghost town and the, and the ghosts that live inside. And then um, you come around. This is all an abandoned railroad bed. And there is an actual uh, railroad uh, bed that runs through the deadening. It is, um, I believe it was the Illinois Central. Before that, it was the LNN Railroad. So that is, that's actually historically accurate. And then, um, but you can see that, you know, you can kind of follow the path and then they have to cut, a, cut through here because there's a guy that's shooting at them with these remote controlled turrets, you know, like, he's, like people can hunt from home now with like remote controlled joysticks and shoot deer and not even get out of their lazy boy. And just, they just let the deer rot there. So this guy's like shooting at them from over here. So they got to cut through here. And then there's some tornadoes that happen. And so like, there's all kinds of crazy stuff all based on dreams 
folklore, misremembered history, actual history, and uh, just anything. I won't give it away. I won't go any further than that. But there's, you know, there's uh, there is a couple of things here. I gotta say, there's a dog path here where this girl has put a saddle on a Great Dane and runs, and that's a real chick I know, a little 11-year-old girl from Simpsonian. She's got a little hand-tooled leather saddle, and she just rides that Great Dane, and she's cutting all these paths in the woods. So that path is one of the paths they take to get to where they're going. And, um, and, then, there, and then there's another thing. I've, I've, I don't want to give it all away, but it's kind, it's kind of fun to talk about. Uh, one of the, I guess you could call them a antagonist is this sort of a sling blade kind of idiot man child that lives in the trees and he's nailed all this lumber these timbers in the canopy of trees to run around high up in the in the forest and so he can spring off these boards like the hunchback of notre dame running around on the tops of the trees and the way they discover he's up there is he he tries to poop on them from up there and this is an actual thing that happened to me when I was a kid. I'm we down in Louisiana, right, playing in the creek, and uh, and it's like splat. And I'm like up there, I'm like it's my my friend's buddy up there is trying to poop on us, like 150 feet up there. You know, this guy was weird, and he actually had one of those kind of th- situations, like a tree houses all in the woods like that with little runways. So. Anyway, you know, there's fun stuff in there. There's, there's some tacky stuff in there. Uh, it's not for kids, <laughs> but uh, all of it's supposed to make it fun and just kind of get you going with um, embracing some of these, your own memories of childhood and, and what your grandma and grandpa used to tell you and just kind of get all that oral tradition going again because it's fun and uh, it's fun to write about. Let's see what I got left here. And this is uh, Carver, the Cherokee Indian guide, who's uh, based on an actual buddy of mine, an old bass player, a uh, friend of mine, who was, he was Native American, 100% Cherokee, full-blooded Cherokee, and also the biggest redneck you ever met. So it, that was kind of a weird dichotomy for me. It's like, how could you be uh, so mean and ornery, you know? And or, You know, he was prejudiced and all that stuff, but it's like, I don't see how you could be both. I mean, he, you know, he, he was just a throwback to an old generation. I think he was raised by his grandparents or something, you know, but he was a throwback. And he's, so you don't know if he's good or bad, you know. He's kind of both. And it's kind of like your uncle that says inappropriate things, and, but you still love him, you know. So he's kind of one of these guys, and that's his truck down there. Ain't skirt. He ain't skirt. He's got the which his truck won the ugliest truck contest, Marshall County, three years consecutive years straight, and uh, those are his knee-high moccasins. He calls his goat boots, and there was a kid in school that had goat boots, and they went. I don't know if I want to tell you why they call him that, but it's for putting the back legs of goats in, if you know what I mean. So uh, the, he's proud of being crude and rude, and he is a uh, he's a hoot. And uh, he, he steals the show in the book and ends up, well, I won't say. I just want to give it all away. But I'm going to read, read a little bit about Carver and, and uh, the other protagonist. Because I can start anywhere. But um, this, again, um, came out of a dream more than anything. But sometimes dreams can be the product of buried cultural memory. And there might be uh, archetypal elements that are revealed in dreams that relate to where folk tales originated anyway. All right, here we go. Story time. It's called Headhunter. And all the little stories throughout the book are like short stories, so you can read it a little at a time. Little short uh, folk tales. We catch up to a broke-down box truck slumped to the right of the rail bed. The faint sound of calliope music seeps from its bullhorn and warps like a bogged-down tape deck. At first, I think it's a lost ice cream truck, but the panels are painted with a sideshow scene. A blonde bikini girl poses in a jungle, unaware of natives approaching through the foliage. 
You can tell the artist spent more time laboring over her sexy legs and breasts because they're perfectly rendered, but her slightly cross-eyed face is just an afterthought. A corn yellow scroll emblazons above, shrunken heads of the equator, each a victim of voodoo, godless pagans. Why? Well, I'll be, says Carver, how'd this get all the way out here? With a crunch of aluminum, the rear panel heaves open like a motorized garage door. Red velvet curtains are revealed in the doorway, and they hang perfectly still. They are fringed in gold like the edges of a fancy flag. After a few pokes from a pair of mystery hands, the curtains part, and a stocky, mustachioed man pops out. He looks like a giant toddler in his shorts and nightgown-length Journey 1988 World Tour t-shirt. The messy, red-faced huckster leaps to greet us with nervous energy. Steady, fellows. Does the warden know you've escaped? Ha! I'm just joshing you. What? Can't you take a joke? Gentlemen, I apologize. I'm Colonel Joseph T. Strong from Brownsville, Texas. But before we can even respond, Well, gentlemen, it looks like I've taken a wrong turn down the wrong road, which ended up being the wrong shortcut to the wrong damn town altogether. I'm all turned around, and my navigational doohickey is on the fritz. Could you two fine sirs tell me how to get to Calvert City? Or you're not far from Calvert, I reply. But you are facing the wrong direction. Yeah, Carver adds. If you can get your truck pointed around the other way, you can hook back out through the trailhead. I just ripped down the chain, so you ought to be able to go up and hang a right. Much obliged for the directions, but I'm afraid this brings us to my next dilemma. As you can see, my mighty galleon has run ashore. She's fine on pavement, but these old gravel roads are a terror, even though she's been coast to coast 12 times. You two look young and healthy enough to lend a hand. Would you mind setting me back on solid ground? Would you mind giving me a push? Oh, if you can let us take a gander what you got in the back of there. Not Carver nods up with his chin. Want a free tour, do you? Well, I'll be happy to show you. You will soon feast your eyes on the terrible flesh and trophies of the heathen tribes of Peru. As you can see from the pulchritudinous panel of my truckside tableau, each severed head is a tragic testament to the perils of paganism, each one a witness for Christ. Gentlemen, make haste, heave ho, and the free tour is yours for the taking. Leaning in, I whisper to Carver, this has got to be the coolest slash weirdest thing I've ever run into. We push Colonel Strong's truck around while he stands on the running board, half in the cab and half out, steering with his right hand and holding the left door open with his left, uh, hollering, mush, mush, the entire time. Steady, fellows, steady as she goes. With one last heave, the truck is set right, and it's time for our free tour. Colonel Strong steps down from the cab, widens his eyes, tiptoes slowly to the back, and motions with his index finger. It lures us in like the worm tongue of a snapping turtle. He leaps upon the rusty back bumper to begin his routine, surprisingly graceful for such a compact little slob. Excellent, gentlemen, excellent. Now for your reward. Who shall be first? Carver seems particularly fired up, so I, I wave him on with a smile. Up the steps and soon to pierce the darkness. He turns to look back at me, but the drapes swallow him like plasma. It seems an eternity. I've been left here for some time now with just the white whisper of the leaves and the humming wood notes of the forest to keep me company. That and the sagging tape of the calliope songs. I might be wrong, but it sounds like there's something else playing beneath the chewed up circus music. The sound of a crying woman being interrogated, slapped around. The faint impression of a man punching and yelling. It fades in and out beneath the strains of waltzing Matilda. Carver exits the curtain at last, rubbing his neck and half smiling out of politeness. Next, kids the pitchman. Whoa, 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 not all at once. Ladies and gentlemen, form an orderly cue in a single line. What'd you think, I ask? Pretty cool, Carver pauses. I reckon them South Americans didn't care much for you pale faces either. Or for one another, for that matter. Go have a look-see, I reckon. Colonel Strong extends a hand, and all at once I am gathered into his realm of mystery. After 30 seconds of utter darkness waiting for the colonel to find the dimmer switch, the orange wire of a decorative candle bulb 
awakens a display of death. Thousands of prune-like shrunken heads hang like dried delicacies in an Asian market. I count a dozen to a cord, clustered like strands of garlic. But this ain't produce. These are people. And you could see each of their tiny, horrible faces like taut, zip-lipped little scrotums displayed so densely that there's literally nowhere to stand without having them touch you. Colonel Strong pushes through to the back, heads bobbing in the wake like wind chimes. I follow behind, tucked in a ball, squinting and wincing and spitting tiny hairs from my face. The soft, bouncing weight of each leathery cluster sends shivers down my spine. He stops at the rear of the room where rows of pickled punks are set up on a table. Dozens of jarred human fetuses suspend in amber repose. A plankton of flesh floats around the stillborn specimens, their mongoloid eyes awash in urine-colored poison. Planned parenthood, he cries, where the fetal meets the fatal. Heathen cannibals of modern times, the cruel tradition continues today. You probably work a lot of churches and revivals, don't you? Indeed I do, sir. Indeed I do. Ever heard of the Reverend Taswell? Ever heard of him? Well, I knew him like a brother. We used to work the same dope show back in the 1970s, before we both found the Lord, that is. It was in 1993 when I heard the word for the first time, but I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a South Carolina puppet show. Excuse me, a puppet ministry. And when that fuzzy little Muppet told us about how Procter & Gamble gives 100% of its profits to the Church of Satan, well, my friend, I walked that aisle lickety-split. I went up and I kneeled before that little cardboard castle, and I grabbed that little fella, tears streaming down my face, and I begged him to show me the way. Been on the straight and narrow ever since. I explained my connection to Tazwell while admiring some of the antique maps tacked to, the, to a cork board. The tea-colored charts are marked with little foil stars that indicate the places where headhunting was practiced and perhaps still is. I turned to exit, preparing myself for the sensation of weaving back through a bunch of withered little pouch heads. And with a deep breath, I duck and aim for the skinny sliver of light between the red curtains. And even though I can feel a slight pinch, I'm finally free, reunited with Carver and standing outside on the old spur line outside the old railroad bed. After a few more words of pretension, the colonel bids us adieu and we wave goodbye. As he peels out, I imagine the G-force swinging his tiny passengers in the back. Gravel goes flying and the exhaust cloud looks like a fresh ghost released into writhing oblivion. It takes a few minutes for the smoke to settle, but at last it's clear. Clear enough for Carver and me to compare the strange baby-sized bite marks on our necks. Q&A here, and then we'll do play some music, or we need to wrap it up. 30 minutes? Okay. Anybody got any stories like that uh, they remember hearing as a kid? Or you know anything from around here? Any uh, superstitions, or is there a local boogeyman? Or Yeah. historical marker that says Frontiers of Justice in an area called uh, uh, Hart's Head. And what happened there about uh, in, in 1799 uh, there were these two brothers, the Hart brothers, yeah. Nick Hart, Nick Jaw Hart, and Little Hart. And, like uh, mass murderers in a way. Or like, yeah, yeah. On, over the course of about eight months they killed about 40 people that we know of and uh, possibly more than that. Yeah, just mm -hmm. uh, uh, just robbing people and anybody they rob more or less usually they killed. Um, so the husband of uh, one of the people that that was killed um, led a posse to catch him and uh, Big Big Heart turned around and charged him uh, Rooster Cogburn style but got shot through the spine and so they, they pulled him down and, and uh, cut the, the husband cut off uh, Big Heart's head. Yeah. Uh, 
uh, yeah, as uh, apparently his last words were, you're, you're a damn rough butcher, get oh. to it or something. Oh. Um, and so they were going to take the, the head back and uh, get a reward for it, but it was getting on the cornbread that they had brought, and so they decided instead to mount it on this tree at this crossroads, right. um, where it would serve as a deterrent to future road agents. Um, and it hung there for decades until a uh, lady uh, cut it down, apparently to uh, grind it into a powder to help her, her ailing grandson, who probably had epilepsy. So it was a skull by that point. So it was, so a, yeah, it was a skull that was on there for, for forever, it's where the, the name Park's head came from. Okay. And so uh, what happened to the skull is sort of the, uh, the, big, the big question, and, and my thought is, you know, whoever has the, the, the skull powder or whatever, mm -hmm. it's still around, uh, uh, you know, Big Park might be wandering around looking for it, so right. you know, yeah. go up there for come Halloween time. Oh, that's cool. Although I think it was July when he got killed, so I guess it's July. But yeah, July, July 4th, yeah. Not so, not so spooky, but that's a great story. Big Headless Heart. Yeah, man. We got our own Headless Horseman in the way. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Or just questions, if you got any questions. It's so weird because King Lake, which is uh, Kentucky Lake down there by Aurora, they, uh, Egner Ferry Bridge, they have the, the Egner Ferry, um, where it crossed, they had a ghost thing with a woman, a white woman, that was an apparition that happened on the water on that ferry. So it's so weird how it keeps popping up, you know, and, uh, uh, and I'm sure in Ireland and England and, you know, it probably goes back on and on. It must be some kind of blood memory or some sort of archetype like what Jung would talk about, you know, or it's just the oral tradition and or just people making up shit, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I love it all. It's just cool. And maybe do one more question and then we'll play some music for you. Is it really? Well, that's cool. What were you saying that the, uh, the Hopkinsville, Hoptown, should be the goblins instead of the tigers? <laughs> yeah, the, the, were, were they were Martians or UFO people or? I, I think they're Tommy knockers that got mad that one of the mines closed and got one. Oh, wow. Um, that's cool. But, uh, but yeah, when, so I grew up in Hopkinsville. There was, we, you know, everywhere else, you know, you go to Japan or Germany and you get all this Hopkinsville goblin stuff. They always call it, you know, there's that. Made look ignorant. So they started really pushing the Kelly angle to try and distance themselves from the Hopkinsville Goblins. The thing is, it's not a hillbilly or a rube thing or a southern thing. You hear this stuff even up north, and how you know the. We have the weird Kentucky book. Every state has a weird, like Texas, weird Oregon, or weird Maine. So there's no re real reason to be ashamed of it because everybody's got it. You know, it's just that we always get the, you know, blame for being ignorant because we're Southern. But it's like, well, y'all got the same thing. It's kind of cool. And I think, and it, it's, a, it's a neat thing to actually cherish, just like uh, these old tunes. Let's, Lucy, you want to come up and let's play some music? Thank you all very much. And uh, we're going to... I'm no more as a harmonica player than I am anything else that I do. Um, I played on a Merle Haggard record, uh, Hank Williams III. I recorded at the Cash Cabin with John Carter Cash. And um, when I lived in Nashville, I was a session player, harmonica player. And um, so I'll do this one real quick, Lucy. And, um,
this in the middle. You might carry more than I do. So. This is Lucy Cochran, everybody, uh, from uh, Nashville. Or the, yeah, the Mason-Dixon line. Well, thank all Sugar Baby I recorded with uh, Charlie Stamper from uh, Knott County. A uh, great fiddle player just passed away. 85 years old, did his first record, and um, we did this tune on it. Hmm, hmm, hmm. I was telling the story last night. We did Lost River sessions down there in uh, Bowling Green. It was fun. Um, and uh, I, the story behind this is I, I live in McCracken County, out the out the county where they don't have trash service. So you either got to burn it in a barrel or take it to the dump. And uh, so, but as the crow flies, the nearest dump is actually Marshall County. So I try to go over there, even though you're not supposed to do that. And I dump my garbage there. And as I'm leaving, this big old dude stops me. He's like, let me see your ID. So I didn't know you got checked, your ID got checked at the dump. <laughs> I knew you had to present your ID. So I got carded at the dump, and he's looking at my license. He's like, you're at the wrong dump, boy. <laughs> I was like, ooh. So I like uh, jumped back in my van and escaped the, the Marshall County landfill. And uh, so like I'm the type of guy who would write a song about something like that. So something called Dump Road Yodel. If you ain't got a dollar, you can always pay them back. But a little, a When the clawfoot tub with his long johns on goes fishing for the devil, his hog wall upon and sings a dump road yodel. His voice is all but gone.
socked a bucket on his head, table scraps in his beard, yoodaloo, oodaloo, oodaloo. Oh, a tire on the fire turned to see his look of fear, oodaloo, oodaloo, oodaloo. Testifying with the shovel, praying with the spade, digging for the devil with the preacher's pony head and sings a dump road yodel till he falls over dead. Oodaloo, oodaloo, I'm gonna play a little bit. And this is by request, uh, a tune I wrote called Blood on the Bluegrass. Well, not request, but we were talking about it earlier. I said I should do this. Uh, 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 the Murray Vampire Cult is also in the book. I don't know if you know about that. Callaway County uh, was uh, home to some grisly proceedings in the mid-90s, and I was there at college uh, to uh, went for the whole thing. The story broke as these kids that were like goth kids, but they took it too far, and they write sign. Yeah, some of them did, and uh, they ended up uh, pretending they were vampires because they got this Dungeons and Dragons kind of role-playing game, and they started playing out in the woods, and then they got carried away with the with the fantasy, and dressing up like vampires, and they ended up killing some people in Florida. But it was a whole cult there of uh, people pretending to be vampires, like in this little country town. It was so weird, and they'd cut themselves and do all this weird stuff. And um, it was real troubling. And uh, my band, the legendary Shack Shakers, one of our first gigs was playing their hangout, which was in a coffee shop. And But they had redesigned the coffee shop to be sort of a gothic dungeon. And you know, like the week before you go in there and you get coffee, it looked like Starbucks or something. And then, then you go in the next week and it's like this dungeon and all these kids are like wearing top hats and being all gothic and playing chess and reading poetry and fake English accents. It's like, what's wrong with you people? So I'm up there, like, we're all dressed up rockabilly. We had our hair done up, and we're just playing. And uh, But when um, it's about as many people as here right now, if you can imagine, you all are vampires that I'm looking out at. It was really weird. And so I started making fun of them, because that's the way I am. You know, it's like, you know y'all aren't really vampires, right? You just probably need to get laid or something, you know? So... Uh, and they were just sort of like hissing at me and all this stuff. And then, um, but when we uh, when we were playing up there, we're just we're still playing. We don't care. We're just going to do our gig. And uh, our body heat had steamed up the window behind us. And so, in the condensation, I went back there and drew with my finger uh, the Count from Sesame Street. You know, the vampire Muppet. <laughs> and I started making fun of them, like one, two, ha, ha, ha. And they and they hated me. Mm. Well, we thought it was funny until I went. We were loading out our gear, and I saw they'd slashed my tires. So, so I'm a victim myself of the Murray Vampire Cult and that which uh, Roderick Farrell created. And that's what who this song is about. Uh, Blood on the bluegrass. One, two, Kentuck town where I love the stubble fields grow one boy did rise with the devil in his eyes whose heart was dark as Westfield coal yeah his heart was dark as Westfield coal Roderick Farrell and that Windorf girl looked down upon the dark and grave he drew his dagger down and the red ran to the ground and they looked along the bloody blade they looked upon the bloody blade blood red blood on the blue blue grass it cries from hallowed hunting ground it was the midnight curse of that bloody black patch it took another poor boy down yes it took another poor boy down lucy
good. Well, riding in the night down to SLA, to the bitter folks a foul farewell. With his claw hammer high, Lord, he drew their spirits nigh, danced amidst the crimson spray. Dance amidst the crimson spray. Blood, red blood on that blue, blue grass. It cries from hallowed hunting ground. It was a midnight curse of that bloody black patch. It took another poor boy down. Yes, it took another poor boy down. Well, take heed, all ye motherless children so lost. Dwell not in the caves of your mind. Roderick Farrell's trailer sin, Lord, it led him to his end. But bloody fields blossom blue in time. Bloody fields blossom blue in time. Blood, red blood on that blue, blue grass. It cries from hallowed hunting ground. It was the midnight curse of that bloody black patch It took another poor boy down Took another poor boy down And yes, it took another poor boy There we go. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you all very much.